0: 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Who are you in Jesus Christ this morning? Well, if you've been in the study any time at all with us, you should have several answers to that question. You are a saint, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You're a gifted believer. Paul has been very clear to this church and letting them know they have gifts that God has given them. He's bestowed upon them because of their faith in Christ. Uh, from the past couple of messages back in chapter 5 and 6, you also are aware that you are a blood-washed, sanctified child of God. Praise God for that. And you're also a member of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul talks about here. You read it this morning in verse 15 and down through in, in chapter 6. You are living on this earth as though you are Christ's body. And you are doing what he would do if he were here. But he has left us here to do the work for him. If instead of him staying on the earth, he went back to, to the Father. We are now here on this earth to do the work of the Father in his place. So you and I live as members of the body of Christ, and the work that He wants us to do, He'll do through us if we surrender ourselves to Him. Now that's a great privilege, and you know that. That is a great privilege to be called a son of God, to be a child of God, to be part of the body of Christ, and then to do what He has called us to do, do the work that He has called us to. That is not something I am worthy to do, nor are you worthy to do that. That is a privilege God has placed upon us, not something that we could earn, something He has bestowed upon us because of His love for us. We made the point a couple of weeks ago, With privilege comes responsibility. There is no privilege that comes without some responsibility attached to it, and God expects certain things from us because of what he has called us to and because of what we are in Jesus Christ. He expects us to stay separate from the world. He expects us to stay separate from the world system. He expects us to live pure lives before him. And if I choose not to, the Bible tells me here, you read it this morning in verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ, shall uh, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? Paul says, every time I sin against God, what I am doing, in effect, is taking the body of Christ and linking it to a prostitute, spiritually speaking. Now, we don't like that picture, but as what Paul is saying. Paul says, I commit spiritual fornication every time I take this body and do something with it that is opposed to God's will and God's plan and takes me back into the system of the world that I came out of. But Paul's not done there. There is one more thing he wants us to know, one more identifying mark to those of us who name the name of Jesus Christ, and we've looked at this in our earlier messages, but I want you to see it again this morning in verse 19. Paul makes it very clear, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. In addition to everything else that you are in Jesus Christ, Paul lets us know one more time that you are also the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost lives inside you this morning. That's what that means when he says that. When he calls you the temple, what it means is God has given you his spirit. God has allowed the very presence of himself to dwell inside you this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is not a new truth to you. So, as, as I begin this morning, my role to start with is nothing more than to remind you of this great truth. Remind you of something that you already know, but bring it back to your conscious memory once again. God lives inside you today. The God of creation, the God who made all things, the God by, by whom all things consist, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God, has taken up residence in you and me this morning. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. That's what God has done. And the idea that God lives inside me today is different from anything else I might hear from those who claim some other spiritual truth, those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, but talk about this divine spark. It's different than what we might hear from the New Age movement. And what it teaches. Uh, those who follow the New Age movement will tell you that the, now this belief obviously has nothing to do with Scripture. Has no basis for it whatsoever. It is simply the opinion of those who have started this movement. What they say is every person born onto this earth is born with a divine spark inside them. Every person born into this world, they say, has got a little piece of God inside them. And somehow that divine spark must be activated. How that occurs is not clear. But when that divine spark is activated, however that happens, that person becomes a little God. That's what they teach. That spark, that little piece of God inside you, develops and grows as it's activated. That sounds really good to those who want to be God without having to follow him. If you want to just be God and not have to follow anything he says, that is a great theory to go by. But hear me now, it's only a theory with no basis whatsoever. To me, that sounds eerily similar to what Satan told Eve in the garden. (laughs) If you do what I tell you to do, I'll make you like God. That's what that New Age movement teaches. That's not at all what we are talking about. When I talk to you about God residing in you this morning, that is not what I'm talking about at all as far as this divine spark, this little piece of God. What I'm talking to you about is the fullness of God, God himself, enter into the heart of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. It is not the activation of some divine spark. I was not born with a divine spark. I was conceived in sin and iniquity. I was totally depraved without Jesus Christ, and you were too. What it means is, when I take Jesus Christ as my Savior, the fullness of the Godhead takes residence inside me at that very moment. When Mackenzie got saved a few weeks ago, back on December 16th, little four-year-old girl got saved, the fullness of God entered into her that very moment. When I got saved as an eight-year-old boy, the fullness of God entered into me the very moment I trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior. All the fullness of God living inside me, and that happens to every person who trusts the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And what that means is, because God indwells you this morning, the power of God also indwells you today. The power of the God of the universe indwells me today because I trusted Jesus Christ the Savior. Now, with all that known, two questions come to mind. Let me ask you two questions that go along with this fact that God lives inside me today. Uh, this truth, by the way, that is too much for me to fully comprehend or fully explain to you. I just tell you what the Bible says, and that's what the Bible says, that I am the temple of the Holy Ghost. With that in mind, if that is true, my first question, if that is true, and it is, What in the world am I worried about today? What is on my mind that concerns me? What is it that I must face that is somehow a worry to me? What situation exists in my life that I fear will not turn out the way it is supposed to turn out? Uh, Do you realize that if you get the full impact of the truth that God himself resides in you this morning, you never have to worry about anything again. (laughs) It takes care of all worry. It's settled. Because the God of the universe lives inside you today. How can I worry when the power of the God of the universe resides in me? What is there in my life that could confront me that that omnipotent power couldn't handle? And I'll give you the answer. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. There's nothing that come into your life that the power of God can't handle. And that power resides inside you today. If I will let that power work, if I will surrender myself to the Spirit of God and allow that Spirit to fill me and control me and not let my concerns interfere, there is nothing in this world that can defeat me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. No matter what is out there externally, it cannot defeat what I have internally because the God of the universe possesses me and lives inside me today. So worries are non-existent. I don't worry about anything. I don't need to worry about anything. And this is important to me because I got worrying down to a fine science. I do it very, very well. <laughs> I'm classic worrier. And when I read that, I say to myself, Sabaka, you don't have to worry about anything because God lives in you today. No matter what it is, he's got it on. His power can take care of it. Now, second question is this. If God lives inside me today, and he does, how does that influence the decisions that I make as far as what I'm going to do with his body? How should that influence my decisions, the choices I make, if God lives inside me? How should it change what I do? If God is in me today, and he is, how should that influence what I look at, and what I listen to, and where I go, and what I take into this body? What I find, as well as this great truth taking care of any worry in my life, it also eliminates all sins of the flesh if I take this truth and personalize it. Uh, this great truth eliminates the spiritual fornication that Paul talked about earlier in this chapter. It's a great truth that eliminates cigarettes and alcohol and overeating and pornography and worldly movies and depraved TV programs and worldly websites. And on and on I could go with all kinds of things that confront you day after day after day. It takes care of all of that. You see, if you grew up in church, and I know many of you did, what I'm going to say to you is something you probably heard in Sunday school. You probably heard this as a kid. And sometimes the things we heard in Sunday school, we kind of think are kid stuff, you know, we kind of grow out of that stuff after a while, and it doesn't apply anymore. Well, this may sound like kid stuff, but in fact, I think this is a biblical truth based upon what I'm looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. It's implied by the fact that God lives in me this morning. Here's the truth. Here's the kid stuff. <laughs> Ready? Wherever you go, you take God with you. Whatever you look at goes through God's eyes. Whatever you hear... It goes through God's ears. So whatever I watch today, God is watching with me. Whatever I listen to, God is listening alongside me. So when you sit down and do whatever it is you're doing, just realize as you do that, God is sitting right next to you, right beside you, hearing and seeing the same things. Whatever you say comes out of God's mouth. (laughs) You're forcing those words out of his mouth whenever you speak because God resides in you today. And therefore, you carry him with you wherever you go. And whatever you are involved in, you involve God in that very same activity, that very same involvement. That's where you take God every time you do that. Now, I realize again, that's kid stuff. But I'll tell you what. If we ever get a hold of that and truly get a hold of that, it will change the way we live. It will change the things we do. It will change the approaches that we take. Uh, We wouldn't go some of the places we go if we got a hold of that. We wouldn't practice some of the things we practice if we get a hold of that. We wouldn't listen and look at some of the things we look at and listen to. We wouldn't take into our body some of the things we take into our bodies if we got a hold of that truth. Believe and hear me, God lives inside you today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if there's a time in your life when you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, God lives in you today. And because he lives in there, I rejoice in the great comfort that that provides, and I adjust my living in accordance with the fact that he is always there, always with me, always going along with whatever I go to. Now, I am sure none of you have this problem. I am sure most of you in this room are much more spiritual than I am, so you probably never, ever deal with this. But I'm going to be honest with you. There are times when my rebellious streak kind of pops up. There's times when I get a little rebellious against the plan of God and the will of God. That old sin nature activates every so often and begins to speak when it shouldn't. I know God lives inside me. I get that. But there are times there are some things I really want to do. And for a moment, I question why is it that God living inside me should stop me from doing what I want to do? Why should that behave, that behave reality, rather, why should that change me or stop me from doing some things that I really want to do? And every so often, I get into an argument with God. Lord, it really won't be that bad. It won't hurt that much. It's not going to affect anything. My life will be just fine. I can do that or say that, and it's not going to be a problem. God and I kind of argue. And then I read verse 20, and I get the answer. Why I can't do those things, in spite of the fact that my rebellious nature wants to do those things. Please look at verse 20 if you would. Look at the first words there. For ye are bought with a price. Ye are bought with a price. If you don't have that verse circled, if you don't have those words underlined, I would suggest you do that this morning. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. Above all the other things we've talked about, as far as what your identity is in him, there's another one. You are bought with a price. What that means is, God has purchased you, and therefore, God owns you this morning as a believer. God owns you. And as hard as that may be to understand or believe, listen to me please, God paid a premium price for your salvation. A premium price. You've been in church a long time. Again, I know many of you understand the price it was paid, but I'm going to remind you that this morning, if you'd allow me to. Hold your hand there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and go to 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 1. Just a few books over. And I want to read with you. Verses 18 and 19. Of 1 Peter chapter 1. And what Peter says here. He says to all of us. And it's something he says. You already know this. But I'm going to tell you about it again. Look at what he says. For as much as you know. That you were not redeemed. With corruptible things. As silver and gold. From your vain conversation. Received by tradition. From your fathers. But with the precious. precious. Blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You sang about it this morning, covered with the blood. I've never heard that song before. What a great song to sing as we look at this passage of Scripture, covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a price that God paid for your salvation. Please hear me. You were enslaved in sin. I don't care at what age you were when you got saved. You were enslaved in sin, and sin was your master, and sin was the only thing you served prior to Jesus Christ. And the price to free you from that bondage was an unthinkable price. The price of redemption was infinitely, went infinitely farther than anything I could ever comprehend or I could ever offer God myself. My redemption came by the price of the precious blood of God's only begotten Son. That's how I paid my price. I was not redeemed with corruptible things. It wasn't silver or gold that could have taken care of it. I couldn't offer God some earthly treasure and say, Lord, by this offering, provide to me your salvation. I couldn't do that because it would never be enough. The price that was paid was the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The precious blood of Christ was the only price that could be paid for my salvation. Now, as I say that to you, how do you react to that internally? What does that do to you inside as you hear that great truth? Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. He said, we may well chide ourselves that we can speak of redemption with dry eyes. We can chide ourselves that I can read that verse to you. And we can say to ourselves, great verse, let's move on, let's move on. We chide ourselves that we can speak of redemption with dry eyes. You see, folks, we lose the impact of it. We lose the power of it. We've been saved so long. It's kind of just one of the facts that we know about the Bible, and we move on from it. I want to remind you this morning of the price that was paid for your salvation. It took the blood of God's own Son to redeem me. It was God's blood that paid that price. Acts tells me that. And that fact should fill me with wonder, and with amazement, and with emotion every time I hear about it. I think sometimes we try so hard to keep our emotions in check from influencing our spirituality, we don't let them respond to things that they need to respond to. <laughs> that should create an emotional response inside you. When you consider the price that was paid for your salvation, you ought to be overwhelmed with the adoring love that God gave you when you consider the price that he paid. And understand that our salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that signifies the pain he went through to purchase that for you. There was a tremendous amount of pain Jesus Christ went through upon the cross that day. You know the story. You've read it in the Gospels. But please hear me this morning. Tremendous pain. Unbelievable pain. Insurmountable pain. Infinite pain. To pay your price for your salvation. Jesus Christ paid the infinite price of your sin. That's the infinite pain of your sin he paid upon the cross that day. I've had two kidney stones in my life. Tremendous pain. pain. <laughs> Never want to go through that again. If I could ever avoid it, I want to avoid that at all costs. Some of you ladies have been through childbirth, you know the pain of that experience. Now, Rick back here can talk to you about pain. <laughs> been through it for the past few months. Think about that experience, whatever that might be, whatever physically painful experience you've had in your life, and then multiply that infinitely, and you still won't know the price that Jesus Christ paid. The pain that he suffered upon the cross for your salvation. And for the Lord, it was not just physical pain he suffered. It was soul pain as well. Uh, This is the pain that came from bearing the sin of the world. Please hear me. It was the pain of the Father turning his back on the Son. For the first time in all of creation, God the Son and God the Father were separate from each other. I believe that's what Jesus Christ was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think he was worried about going to the cross. I don't think the pain of the cross was his concern in the Garden that day. I think what he was thinking about was the fact that for the first time in the entire creation, he was going to be separate from the Father. It had never happened before. Father's at will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to be separate from you. But that's what he paid. That's the price he paid. That's the internal price that Jesus Christ paid, deserted by the Heavenly Father for the sin of the world. The pain of the divine wrath of God being poured out, the pain of bearing the punishment of sin, the entire sin of the entire world placed upon one man endured in one body, the pain of bearing the guilt of the entire world, what you and I would have suffered had we been condemned to spend eternity in hell. I don't get it. I don't understand it. All I know is this. He paid the entire price for my salvation. That means when Jesus Christ went to hell that day, somehow some way, he suffered an eternity of hell in the day that he was there. Because he was infinite, because he was eternal, he could suffer that eternal pain for me, that eternal punishment for me as he went to that place. He was the substitute for the death of the ungodly. He was made a curse For you and I, he became a worm in my place. The presence of God was denied him so that you and I could be brought out of sin and be made a son of God. Be made all those things that Paul talks about in the first six chapters of this book. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not worth that. And you aren't either. You aren't either. I'm not worth that price, I'm not worth what he paid, I'm not worth the pain and the suffering that he went through. From my point of view, that was much too high a price to pay for me, as far as I'm concerned. But it was the only price that could be paid. If God was going to redeem me, and it was God's desire to redeem me, it required the shedding of blood by a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus Christ was the only one who could fit the bill, the only one who could do it. The songwriter put it this way. He says, your love endured the cross, despising all the shame. That afternoon when midnight fell, your suffering cleared my name. And that sin-swept hill became the open door to paradise. The cost was great, yet you paid the price. The chorus says this, you paid much too high a price for me in tears and blood and pain. To have my soul just stirred at times, yet never really changed. You deserve a fiery love that won't ignore your sacrifice. Because you paid much too high a price. That's it, folks. That's it. And even though from my vantage point, as I look at what Jesus Christ did for me, as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, and realize the precious blood paid the price for my sin, I realize that was much too high a price from my point of view to pay. And yet, I'm no fool. I know a good deal when I see it. And so I accepted that sacrifice. I accepted that payment for my sin. I agreed that God would purchase me. And the fact that I am bought with a price is indisputable. I could not pay my way out of my sin on my own. God had to do it for me. It was going to be done. And I rejoice in that fact. I rejoice throughout every day as it comes to my mind. I rejoice in the fact that God has saved me. That brings a joy over me that I cannot describe. God has paid the price. It's done. It's settled. I've been bought out of sin's hold. Never, ever, ever to go back into that again. My My eternity is guaranteed by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But look at it if you would. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 now. And look at it if you would. It says there in verse 20, For ye are bought with a price. But something else. Look at the last words of verse 19. Ye are not your own. You see, folks, it follows. If I am bought with a price, then I'm not my own. I can't lay claim on myself if I've been bought with a price. And if having been bought with a price is a fact, then the same fact also exists. I am not my own. Now, it's amazing how selective we can be. I like the part about being bought. I love the part about the fact that God paid that price for me. I rejoice in that every day. It's so interesting to me that I can take that, but I don't like the part that says you're not your own. The first part is the natural consequence of the second part. And you see, folks, whether you knew it or not, when you got saved, when you got saved, you entered into an agreement with God. You made a contract with the Heavenly Father. And the agreement is stated here, if you accept the purchase price for your salvation, God then owns you. He now owns the rights to you. Whatever he wants you to do, you are now required to do because you entered into that contract. I said, Lord, I'll take your salvation. I'll take the price. And God says, that's great. I'll give you the price. However, understand, I'm not, you're now mine. I now own you. I've got you. Part and parcel. You're all mine. Now, I can illustrate that to you in many, many ways. Let me illustrate it to you this way. A sports team buys the contract of a player. And once they buy that contract, that sports team now has complete control over that player. Let's use baseball as an example. Uh, they buy the player. He's a pitcher. He was a starting pitcher with his old team. But now the new team decides they want him to be a reliever instead. They can do that because they now own his rights. They can do with him whatever they want to do with him. He may have played left field all of his career, but the new team decides, we want you in center field now. And so what they do, they just move him into that new position, and he has nothing at all to say about that. And he might protest if he wants to, but it doesn't make any difference because that team now owns him. They have full rights over him. And because they own him, they can do with him whatever they want to do with him, and he can protest, and he can complain as much as he wants to, but it doesn't matter because he now belongs to that team. And he lost the right to control his own destiny the day he allowed that team to buy his contract. Now, he could have said, I'm going to retire. I don't want to go to this new team. I'm going to quit baseball. He could do that. But if he chooses not to, he knows exactly what's going to happen the day that decision is made. Now, believer, the same thing is true of you. Same thing is true of you. Uh, In your relationship to the Lord, Paul describes it in much more basic terms than that of a baseball player. Paul, in other passages of Scripture, talks about it, refers to it as us being slaves, as being slaves. Over and over in Paul's letters, Paul talks about us as being servants of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 is a great example of that. In the Old Testament, it's called being a bond slave, a bond slave. And just as that slave is purchased by that master, and just as that slave has no rights of his own, so also I have been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a servant of his, and I no longer have any rights of my own. Just as I was a slave to sin, completely under the control of sin prior to my salvation, so after my salvation, I trade in, and I become now a slave to Jesus Christ. And what that means is, from the moment of my salvation, what I want no longer matters. What I desire is no longer necessarily figured in. God sets the plan, and God sets the course, and He knows exactly where He wants me, and what He wants me to do. And if I want things to go well, I need to abide by the plan of the Master. And just like that ball player, I knew the terms before I signed the contract. It's right there, it says, uh, you're bought with a price, therefore, you're not your own. There's the contract, there's the agreement. I knew that before I trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and I went into it without understanding, and therefore, the contract is sealed and signed and is not able to be changed. It's settled forever. Salvation is an all-or-nothing proposition. All-or-nothing. If you take God's salvation, He takes control of you. It's just that easy. And not just the parts that you want to give up, just not the parts of your life you don't care about having control over. When God says, I bought you with a price, you're not your own. He means all of it, every part of it. He takes control over all of you. And he has the right to do that because he has purchased every part of you the day he saved you. And therefore, because of that, he has the right to every part of you. Now, as I read that, and again, if I let my sinful nature kind of process that, I may see that as a negative. My sinful nature may say, you know what, I don't like being bought by somebody. I don't like being under somebody else's control. i want to control my own life. I'm going to control my own destiny. And therefore, I might resist that whole thought. I might fight that concept. Let me ask you something, if you have that problem. How good are you at controlling your own life? How good are you at that? Uh, before you got saved, was it going pretty well? <laughs> Is that why you got saved? Because things were going so well, you thought you just add that to the mix? You see, if life had been going so well, if you had been doing such a good job of controlling your own life, you wouldn't have been seeking a Savior. That's why people out there aren't seeking a Savior, because they think they got life all under control, and they don't want somebody else telling them what to do. As they fail after failure after failure, and as it continues on that way, they somehow believe life is going just fine. You didn't believe that. That's why you trusted Jesus Christ as a a Savior. One of the main reasons I got saved is because I wasn't doing so well with my life. I knew I couldn't manage my life the way I needed to manage it. Under my control, my life would have fallen apart, and if you got saved later in life, that was happening to you. If you got saved later in life, your life was falling apart. It wasn't any kind of a benefit. You weren't enjoying that life whatsoever. That's why you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. See, see, one of the reasons you get saved is to get somebody in control of your life who truly can control it. So, you see, placing God in control of your life is not a negative, it's a positive. It's one of the most positive things you could ever do. Placing the omnipotent creator, the omniscient creator, in charge of your life. But there's another positive benefit to this as well. Because I am purchased by him, because he now owns me, I have the right to partake in whatever it is that he has. He opens the door. Uh, The sheep who are owned by the master have the right to partake of whatever that master owns. Whatever pasture he has, they have the full right to graze in that pasture anytime they want to. If he owns a thousand acres of rich pasture, it's all theirs for the sheep to enjoy. And not only that, but as that sheep grazes in that pasture, if some wolf comes along, it is the master's responsibility to keep the wolf at bay. The sheep doesn't have to worry about that because he's now owned by the master, and the master protects his investment by taking care of the wolves as they come near to where the sheep are. No danger can come to that sheep that the master isn't prepared to handle because he owns that sheep. And here's what the Bible tells me in the book of John. The book of John chapter 10 tells me that I am now a sheep in God's heavenly pasture. I am in the master's fold. And because he owns me, everything that God has is mine. What does God have? Well, he has it all. It's all his. He owns rights to everything that you see and everything that you don't see. It's all His. Well, if I'm in His pasture, if I'm one of His sheep, and I'm in that fold, that means everything God has is available to me. I've got it all because I'm part of Him, because He possesses me, because He owns me. That means I can partake in every good thing that the Master has. I have access to all of it. Now, let me be clear to you God is a good Master. He will never do anything with you to intentionally harm you or make you miserable. God's plan is always perfect. And the problems that arise because of his plan is not always our plan. I realize that. Somehow we feel we have to have some say in what God does. That's where you need this picture of this slave and this master. Because you see, the master never asks the slave what he would like to do. He never goes to the slave and says, what would you like like to do today? What would you like to be involved in? What work would would you like to do today? Never does that once. The master says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go there and do this today, and tomorrow you're going to do this. And the master says, yes, sir. Why? Because he's owned by the master. The slave gives no response. He simply does what the master tells him to do. The slave never has input into what his task will be. He does what the master says because he is owned by the master, and the master has the right to do with him whatever he chooses to do because he purchased him for that very purpose. You're bought with a price. Verse 20. You're bought with a price. And the purpose of that is found in the rest of that verse. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There is the purpose of the purchase. Why did God purchase you? Why did God own you? Why did God possess you? God did that because he wants you to glorify him in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's the purpose. And God decides how we best can do that. God decides the ways in which we cannot do that. My job is not to question him or to complain to him. My job is to glorify him in the best way that he sees fit. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you hear nothing else from this message this morning, if you can get a hold of that and abide by that, it is going to simplify your Christian life. It'll take care of the stresses and the concerns you have in your Christian life. The reason I have problems in my Christian walk is because I keep wanting to do it my way. I keep thinking I know best how it ought to be done. I keep thinking my plan is good, and if God would just follow my plan, it would be exactly what God would want. And I keep thinking that over and over and over. I think I know best how I can glorify God. I think if God would just listen to me and do it my way, things would be a whole lot better. But in fact, it would be so much easier if I just understood my role and accepted my role. And if I just understood that I'm the servant and he's the master and what he says goes, no questions asked. If I would just do that, I would glorify him in ways I could never imagine. If I would just do that. Maybe you're facing something this week. Maybe it was something out of the blue. Maybe something just happened and you had no idea it was coming and there it is. And you may be down on your knees saying, Lord, what in the world are you doing with my life? Why in the world would you let this happen to me? Why are you letting this thing go on and on like it seems to be going on and on? Why are you doing this? (laughs) For you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Because he owns you, Whatever he's brought into your life, he is brought in for that very purpose because God wants to be glorified in your body and in your spirit. And whatever event comes into your life, whatever occasion, whatever you might see as a difficulty in your life, God has brought that very thing into your life so that you might be able to glorify him in your body and in your spirit because he owns you. And you may say, this is a bad thing, and God says, just use it, please. If you'll just use it, I will be glorified through it, and you'll see things happen in ways you never thought would happen. If you just accept the fact that I am your master, and you are the servant, just do what I've called you to do, and life will go so much better if you'll make that choice. And if I would do that, And if I would do that consistently, I would glorify God so effectively, all the world around me would be captured by the glory of my God. Is that what you want in your life? Is the utmost goal goal in your life to glorify God through all that you do? Well, just realize then you're bought with a price and be the servant God has called you to be. And it will happen if you'll do it. You'll glorify him. That's the promise of verse 20. That's what it's all about. When I just turn the reins over to him... And just shut my mouth and go along with the program like a good servant should. God will do things in ways and God will be glorified in ways that I could never do on my own. Just accept the the fact that you've been bought with a price. I'm sure you've heard this illustration before, but let me give it to you this morning. It underscores the point that Paul is making here. A little boy made a boat. And he loved that boat. He made it all by himself. He put it all together on his own. It took him about two years to make that boat. And there was a small stream behind his house, and he went down that stream one day to finally sail that boat. What he didn't realize is he took that boat out there that the current was too swift. And in a matter of seconds, that boat was rushed down that stream, and he watched it go and couldn't get to it, and he watched that boat simply fade out of sight. Went back to his house, sorrowful. He lost the boat he had made and had one sailing, and he lost the boat that quickly. A couple of years later, he was walking along that stream, and he ran into a man. And the man said, hey, look at the boat that I found a little while ago. And the boy looked at that boat and said, hey, that's my boat. I made that boat. That boat's mine. I lost that boat two years ago. That's my boat. And the man says, no, you're wrong. It's my boat. I found the boat. It's now mine. And the boy said, yes, sir, but you don't understand. I made that boat. I made that boat all by myself. That's my boat. And the man could see the passion in the boy's eyes and said, look, I'll tell you what. I'll sell the boat to you. Nice guy. I'll sell the boat to you. And he gave him a price. So the boy worked a few months and did chores and odd jobs and so forth, came back with the money and came to that man and bought that boat from that man. And as he was walking away from that man, hugging that boat, he could be heard to say, little boat, you're mine twice. I made you, and now I bought you. You're mine twice. I made you, and now I bought you. Believer, you're God's twice. First, he made you, but because of sin, I wandered off from the plan God had for me. But God never gave up on the plan. Instead, God devised a new way that I could become his again. He sent his son down to a cross and had him crucified there. And Three days later, that son came out of the grave and conquered sin and death and hell. And as I repented of my sin and asked Jesus Christ to save me, that payment for sin became my payment. And in that act, God not only was my maker, but now he also became my purchaser. He not only made me. But now he also bought me. He bought me out of that sin that had pulled me far from where he wanted to be. And so now, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're his twice. (laughs) You're his twice. He's made you. And he's bought you. Can I say it to you again? With privilege comes responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility. If you've been given the great privilege of being called a son of God, doesn't it make sense that there would be responsibility attached to the choice that God has made? If he cared enough to buy me back and made all the effort that he had to make and paid the supreme price that he paid when I was already his to begin with, don't you think I earn, own, earn, owe him something in return? I owe him something back for what he's paid for me. Here's what it tells you that you owe him. Look at verse twenty one more time if you would. What do I owe him because of? The payment that you made, you're bought with a price. Therefore, therefore, because of the price that has been paid, therefore, believer, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Please notice, Paul puts parentheses around that concept. He tells you at the beginning of the verse, he tells you at the end of the verse, you are bought with a price, you are God's. He wants you to understand that fully. And because of that surrounding, then he says, glorify God in your body. And in your spirit. What do I owe him? I owe him the choice of using me however he wants to use me. However he can get the glory out of my life. That's what I owe him. In my body and in my spirit. Because of the great price he has paid for me. My life should be made up of finding ways to glorify him. And that is, please hear me, that is the only thing that should interest you. The only thing that should interest me in my life, apart from everything else I'm involved in, every other concern I might have, the only thing that should truly interest me is bring glory to the one who purchased me, who bought me with such a price. I should set aside everything else. And make that the only interest of my life. And let me tell you, if anything else takes, it takes the place of that, if any other interest becomes more important to you, if I allow, I allow anything to become more important to me than allowing him to get glory for himself, I have violated the contract. It's not the way it was set up. I have violated the contract. And if I daily seek to glorify myself, or I seek to glorify anything or anybody else besides God, it reveals to me how little I understand of what God has done for me. How little I understand of the price that he paid for me. He made me, and as a believer, he bought me. And therefore, he owns me this morning. That is who I am in Jesus Christ. That is who you are in Jesus Christ. And the natural response, the wisest response, the only response that makes any kind of sense of all is to rest daily in surrender to him. Surrender to his plan. Let all your days be spent glorifying this one who has bought you and paid for you. Do nothing else and do glorify nobody else. Spend the rest of your days glorifying him. He's purchased you. He owns you. That's the contract you signed with him. Glorify him in your body and in your spirit. Let's pray.